Welcome to Life Point Plus, a program dealing with marriages and family. We are so glad you're listening. Here's your host, pastor and teacher, Gary Moore. Welcome to Life Point Plus. I'm your host, Gary Moore. Last week, we concluded our broadcast beginning to look at the question, What do unhappy couples do wrong? Doctors Les and Leslie Parrott tell us that if we are to cultivate the habit of happiness with our partner, we will need to avoid the poisons of self-pity, blame, and resentment. Last week, we looked at self-pity. We begin today by looking at blame. Ever since Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent, couples have employed the trick of finding excuses and shifting responsibility. A great deal of unhappiness in marriage can be traced to a mate's habitual tendency to blame his or her spouse. In many unhappy relationships, one of the partners is a scapegoat, the one held responsible for the couple's unhappiness. The other partner sees him or her as the source of their difficulties. In effect, the blaming spouse is saying, You are my problem but he or she would be hard-pressed to find a marriage counselor who would agree. Professionals know better. They know that marital unhappiness is never caused by only one person. That's why therapists focus not on who is wrong, but on what is wrong. Blaming almost always results in a marital blow-up. Blame can be overcome, but if it is allowed to linger... If couples habitually play the blame game, their happiness quotient is inevitably depleted. The parrots tell us that every symptomatic problem in marriage, apathy, irritation, boredom, anger, depression, etc., can be traced to a breakdown in personal responsibility. If you are angry, it is not your husband's fault, but your own choice. The habit of blaming your spouse is completely contrary to the principle of taking responsibility for your own attitude. Well, now let's move to resentment. No one is exempt from being treated unfairly. We can all justify the anger we feel about how a situation or someone, including our spouses, unfairly complicated our existence. But when we hold on to our disappointment, pain, and anger, we only compound our troubles, for that is when resentment does its deadly work. Resentment is like a cancer to relationships, at first small and imperceptible, but over time growing larger and spreading its poison through the entire relationship. When you ruminate about an injustice done to you, replaying it over and over again in your mind, it will trigger a flood of negative emotions that feed the hurt all the more. Then comes a succession of confirming incidents to convince you that the object of your resentment is the source of all your unhappiness. There may be periods of remission when your mind is occupied with other challenges, but sooner or later you come back to times of brooding and the cancer of resentment spreads like wildfire. The parrots say that resentment, even if directed to someone other than a spouse, is always detrimental to marriage. A happy marriage cannot survive the cancer of resentment. 
like self-pity and blame, it eats at the human spirit and kills the capacity for joy. But if these toxins are removed, there is no reason a couple can't live happily ever after. Or can they? You know, every couple about to be married, whether they admit it or not, harbors dreams of a perfect life together. Many newlyweds say how lucky they felt on their wedding day to have met someone who understood them, who shared their likes and dislikes, and who was so compatible with them. Yet, no matter how ideally suited they are, at some point every husband and wife realize that theirs is not a perfect match. They become aware that they do not always agree, that they do not think, feel, and behave in exactly the same manner, and that merging their two personalities and preferences and backgrounds is much more difficult than they ever anticipated. The bubble is burst, and they resign from the hope of living happily ever after. But there is an alternative. Marriages can never be perfect because people are not perfect. Being human, every bride and groom has faults as well as virtues. We are at times gloomy, cranky, selfish, or unreasonable. We are a mixture of generous, altruistic feelings combined with self-seeking aims, petty vanities, and ambitions. We unite love and courage with selfishness and fear. Marriage is an alloy of gold and tin. If we expect more than this, we are doomed for disappointment. So how can a couple live happily ever after? Well, not by depending on externals. Too many couples view marriage as winning the lottery. They got lucky and now they will have interesting and exciting experiences. Now they will be loved and affirmed. Now they will be fulfilled. But marriage is not like winning the lottery, at least not like we think winning the lottery would be. An unexpected cash windfall would certainly make you happy, but only for a short while. Researchers have discovered that a random event, being lucky, occurring without your input does not create long-term happiness. You need a sense of mastery, of control, the feeling that something good has happened because you caused it to happen. Living happily ever after only works when you make it work. When you take the raw materials of marriage, the good and the bad that you've brought together as persons, to design, create, and build a lasting bond, the result is an enduring and meaningful sense of genuine fulfillment. If, on the other hand, you are counting on the magic of marriage to make you happy, the relationship will leave you crushed, lonely, feeling like a failure, and resigned to your despair. The habit of happiness is an inside job. If you find the right attitude in spite of atmospheric conditions, if you program your mind with positive impulses, and if you adjust to things beyond your control, you will discover that living happily ever after need not be a myth. Now let's shift gears and begin to talk about communication. You know, it's the general consensus among couples that the number one problem they face in marriage is a breakdown in communication. 
I personally believe that mutual understanding is more important than communication, since without mutual understanding, you really won't have communication. Without mutual understanding, you make assumptions as to why your spouse is doing and acting the way they are. And when we make assumptions and assign motive, we always make them in such a way as to protect our own position. Whether a marriage sinks or swims depends on how well partners send and receive messages, how well they say what they mean and understand what they hear. Communication can either buoy relational intimacy or be the dead weight leading to its demise. The parrots say that the best time to build communication skills is when things are going well, usually in the very earliest stages of marriage. Research measuring how well engaged couples communicate compared to how well they communicate six years into their marriage shows that by learning effective skills early on, they greatly increase their chances for success in marriage. Fortunately, communication is a learned skill. And when preceded by what I term the mutual understanding method, you can become more understanding and better understood. What happens when both partners struggle to convey what they want or need in the relationship, never realizing they are speaking a language the other one does not comprehend? Over the disappointment, the partners erect defenses against each other, becoming guarded. They stop confiding in each other, wall off parts of themselves, and withdraw emotionally from the relationship. They can't talk without blaming, so they stop listening. One spouse might even leave, but if they both stay, they live together in an emotional divorce. I call it living alone together. In a recent poll, 97% who rated their communication with their partner as excellent are happily married compared to only 56% who rated their communication as poor. The poll concluded, In an era of increasingly fragile marriages, a couple's ability to communicate is the single most important contributor to a stable and satisfying marriage. My recommendation, based on my experience, is that you begin with the mutual understanding method which will pave the way for healthy communication. Having difficulties with the communication does not bode well for marital satisfaction. In fact, one of the most important skills you can learn is how to talk so your mate will listen and how to listen so your mate will talk. Mutual understanding will help create an emotionally safe environment where communication efforts can be attempted. Communication obstacles exist between every husband and wife. Everyone grows up with a unique set of communication rules, and marriage forces two people with different sets of rules to renegotiate them. The truth really is, you can't not communicate. Everything you do communicates. It's a matter of what and how you are communicating. Picture in your mind a cartoon that depicts a grumpy husband reading the paper, his aggrieved wife standing in front of him, arms folded. He's saying, Do we have to try to save our marriage while I'm reading the sports page? 
His reaction points to one of the most common complaints of unhappy spouses. He or she doesn't talk to me. Whenever a marriage is disintegrating, the partners conclude, we just can't communicate, or we just don't talk to each other anymore. They believe the failure to talk is the cause of their problems. Actually, the non-talking is not a lack of communication, but actually a form of communication that sends a surplus of negative messages. Well, have a great weekend, and this Christmas Sunday, find yourself in one of the many Bible-believing churches in the Treasure Valley. God bless. Thank you for listening today. This program is brought to you by Cloverdale Church of God. If you would like to reach Pastor Gary, please email him at pastorgary at cloverdalechurch.org. To know more about the church, go to our website at www.cloverdalechurch.org. Thanks for listening, and be blessed.